a common, maybe implicit view of wisdom is that it is a cold, calculated, calm, even cunning thing. If A happens, then do B and you'll get C. We rarely, if ever, think of wisdom as creative. Well, at least I haven't. Creatives, artists, they're stereotypically free spirits. They're the dreamers, the people with their head in the clouds, the ones too consumed with what could be rather than what is. If you were asked to describe an artist, the first word to pop into your mind might not be wise, but in the wisdom books, it's the musicians and the poets who are put front and center. And in society, isn't it the artists who stand in the public square and like wisdom, ask us to listen? They're the ones who translate seemingly cold and calculating things like science, philosophy, and even wisdom into forms that not only connect with our head, but also connect with our hearts. When it comes to wisdom, the distance between your head and your heart is often just a song. Welcome to Christianese. Wisdom, part three. The songs. There's something magical about music. I know that sounds a little silly, maybe a little bit too Disney and Jiminy Cricket, but hang with me. Music has the ability to not just interact with, but to change both your heart and your mind. There are songs that, no matter how your day is going, they'll make you smile. There's also songs that, no matter how your day is going, will make you cry. There's music that seems to perfectly encapsulate particular emotions and songs that help us get through particularly emotional times. Music also has the ability to unlock and store memories. There's some songs that you'll hear that take you right back to high school or junior high or to a family road trip when you were just a kid. That's why music is also a learning tool. It's how we learn our ABCs, that Jesus loves me, and the function of conjunction-junction. And whatever it is that we learn with music is incredibly sticky. Scientists have found that the average person can remember more than a thousand songs, which is why we all remember every single word to Smash Mouth's All-Star, but cannot remember our Netflix passwords. Music unlocks our emotions, our memories, and our learning potential. It is magical. But music isn't just individual, it's communal. Not just in the sense of coming together to sing at a concert or in worship, but in defining who we are through forms like folk music or national anthems. And then when you think about music itself, on the one hand, it can be very complicated. Music theory is essentially a mathematical language. But at the same time, music is so simple and approachable that even toddlers and babies can do it. And when you think of its individual impact, its accessibility, and its defining nature, it's really no wonder that God would use music to teach us wisdom, engaging not just our minds, but our hearts and the whole community. The last two books I'm covering in this wisdom series are Psalms and the Song of Solomon, two books of music embedded smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And while you may think you understand Psalms and Song of Solomon, they may not quite be what you think. 
The Book of Psalms is typically thought of as a hymnal, a collection of worship songs seemingly haphazardly put together with numbered songs used in specific situations. Now there's some songs that are more popular that you'll go to more often than others, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But there's some, maybe a lot that you've overlooked or never really read. Now Psalms, this hymnal is full of lots of different kinds of songs. There's hymns, songs of praise for both individual and communal worship. Some of the individual songs are like those of King David, who would personally praise the Lord. The communal songs, many of them, are what are called song of ascents. They're songs that people as a family or a community would sing as they ascended the hill to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. There's also songs of lament, those songs from moments of distress when we're crying out to God for help, like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I groan in prayer, but help seems far away. A song like that probably wouldn't be too popular in our worship culture today. Another style of song that wouldn't be very popular are those songs of imprecation, songs that call on God to curse our enemies. These songs call for God's justice to be done. Then there's lighter songs, those of thanksgiving that thank God or call others to thankfulness wisdom songs like Psalm 1 that encourage people to live and follow God in a wise way, and royal songs, these songs about God's kingdom and his sovereignty. And a lot of times these styles are blended together, so it can be kind of hard to separate them out. Just to clear the air, there's nothing wrong with seeing the book of Psalms as a hymnal. We should sing these songs, or at least use them as a model for our prayer and worship. But seeing psalms only as a hymnal is kind of backward. It's applying a modern creation to an ancient book. The first known hymnal wasn't printed until 1501, so we can't exactly say that the psalms are something that hasn't existed until the last 500 years. It may be more accurate to say that our hymnals are kind of like the psalms, but that leaves us with a pretty big question. What is the book of Psalms? When you start to study the book of Psalms, you realize that it's not a haphazard collection of poems, but an expertly crafted and curated collection of songs that retell the biblical narrative. Psalms one and two set the stage for the entire book calling us back to the Garden of Eden and pointing us forward to God's future kingdom. Psalm 1 takes us to a luscious garden, a tree of life, and shows us the goodness and the blessedness of the person who lives in that garden. Psalm 2 is messianic. It begins with a question, why do the nations rage? Why is there war and unrest? But brings us to God's promise of, I have installed my king in Zion. And anchoring this tension between the long past and God's promised future is King David, the one through whom the Messiah was promised, and the man who wrote many of the Psalms in this book. Now, if you usually just read Psalms like a hymnal, picking and choosing songs, you may miss Psalms' internal structure. It's divided into five separate books. Each of these books is a kind of movement or chapter in God's redemptive story going from the glory of King David's reign to the fall of his family, the pain of exile, and the hope for God's restoration. 
Book 1 and 2 of Psalms are all about King David, his rise to the throne, his prayers, and his sin. So in the first two books, we have a reminder of God's created order, the hope for the coming Messiah, and the now, but not yet, kingdom. Book number three, often called the Book of Darkness, describes the effects of sin, specifically on the fall of David's kingdom, the exile of God's people, and their longing for salvation. But the story doesn't end in darkness. Book number four begins with a song of repentance in Psalm 90. It says, You are aware of our sins. You even know about our hidden sins. Turn back towards us, O Lord. Satisfy us in the morning with your loyal love. Then we will shout for joy and be happy all of our days. The book that begins with repentance ends in Psalm 106 with give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loyal love endures forever. And then book five, the very end of Psalms, is a book of praise, celebrating God's word and the goodness its wisdom brings to our lives. As the book concludes, looking back on God's redemptive history and the hope for the future, Psalms ends with five songs of praise, five hallelujahs, praise Yahweh. Psalms isn't just a hymnal. It's a story of redemption, starting in the garden, moving through the fall, and ending in redemption. Its songs cover the gamut of human emotion, taking us from the highest of joys to the lowest pits of despair. It not only teaches us truth, but also helps us evaluate our emotions through that truth so that we can respond correctly in any given situation. Our worship today mostly looks like the songs of ascent, those songs of celebration, of joy, of coming together. But those songs aren't the only kind of songs that we sing. Our lives are full of all different kinds of songs and experiences. We can read the songs of lament when we feel like David crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can also sing songs of imprecation, calling for God to bring justice to our broken world, to end evil once and for all. We can read and sing the songs of wisdom, which will help us think and live in God's world in his way. And we can also sing the royal songs alongside King David, the Old Testament saints, and with the historic church longing for God's future kingdom and his coming Messiah. If the Psalms is a hymnal, it's the songbook of our lives. Ah, that's a little cheesy. Is that too cheesy? Yeah, I think it's too cheesy. Let's move on. The next book of music, our last wisdom book in this series, is the greatest song in all of ancient Israel, the Song of Songs. The Song of Solomon. It's at once extraordinary and wonderful that there is a book of wisdom in love because where else in life would we welcome and desire more wisdom than in the area of love? But at the same time, like love, this book is difficult. It's enigmatic. It's layered. It's complicated. It's beautiful, evocative, even celebratory. And despite a lot of churches' hesitance to dig into it because of its erotic nature, it is magnetic. On the surface, the Song of Solomon is a poem about two lovers, 
a woman and her beloved as shepherd king. They go through cycles of seeking and finding and losing and seeking and finding one another. And when they do find each other, they seemingly can't help but break into poetry about what they love about one another, what attracts them to each other. And throughout the book, there's this constant presence of a garden. As you read it, you get the sense almost that we're looking at a sort of new Adam and Eve. We see the struggles and the difficulties in their relationship, much like we have, but at the same time, we see a relationship as it was created to be. Two people emotionally and physically intertwined without shame, just as it was in the Garden of Eden. In general, modern Protestants and evangelicals do shy away from this book because of its sexual nature. We don't really feel comfortable talking about it. But it may be that we also don't really go to this book for wisdom because it's not straightforward teaching. It's a piece of music to be contemplated, to be examined and meditated over. Like love, Song of Solomon takes work, it takes time, and it takes patience. But if you're willing to stick with it, it reveals indescribable beauty. Now, I know that sounds melodramatic, but the Song of Solomon is not in the same genre as, say, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. It is a divinely inspired book of the Bible, but it is different than all the other books. It's a song, almost a kind of play, that's in the middle of the Bible. So when you come to it, you have to think of it less like a wisdom buffet, like Proverbs can be, and more so like a diamond mine. You can't just graze through it and expect to get everything that this book has to offer. You have to work at it. You have to spend time with it. You have to slow down and meditate on it. It's not clear. It's not simple. There's multiple ways to read it and multiple ways that God's people have understood it throughout history. But if you sit down with it and spend time with it, it will yield its gems. In the most basic reading of this book, this is a love song between a woman and Solomon a shepherd king. But it's not always clear that the shepherd and the king are the same person. For example, at the end of the book, it seems like King Solomon is doing the opposite of what he should be doing. In chapter 8, starting in verse 6, love is strong as death, its passion as unrelenting as the grave, its flames burst forth, it is a blazing fire, surging waters cannot quench love, flood waters cannot overflow it. If someone were to offer all his possessions to buy love, the offer would be utterly despised. In a straightforward reading, the beloved woman is saying this to who would be King Solomon. But right after these statements, Solomon shows up and tries to buy the love of the young woman. He offers a thousand shekels for her hand in marriage, a fortune multiple times over. And she, like the verse says, utterly despises his offer. So you could read this song as the shepherd and the king being two separate people. That King Solomon is pursuing this woman to make her a part of his harem of 700 wives, but she is in love with a shepherd who she sneaks away to seek and find in romance. If you want to be a little bit more generous to Solomon, you could say that the shepherd and the king are his two sides. 
that the shepherd is Solomon who is faithful to God, and the king is the Solomon later in life who walks away from God, that this woman is in love with who he was, but not who he's become. Now, if that doesn't give you enough to chew on as you go to and start to investigate the Song of Solomon, you should also know about the way that the historic peoples of God have seen this book. The historic Jewish interpretation of Song of Solomon is that it's an allegory of God's love for his people, Israel. Christians read this book in very much the same way, interpreting it as an allegory for Christ's love for the church. In both cases, the people of God interpret this song to be about God's unrelenting and redeeming love for his wayward people. One place this shines through is in chapter 4, verse 11, which describes the woman, the bride, in this way. Your lips drip sweetness like honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. In all of scripture, there is only one other woman who's described this way, as having honey drip from her lips and being surrounded by wonderful fragrances. It's the adulteress of Proverbs chapter 5, the woman who is the opposite of Lady Wisdom. So in Song of Solomon chapter 4, this bad description is redeemed and turned into something that draws the husband to his bride. Just as the shepherd king's love redeems his bride, so does God's love redeem his people. So there's the surface reading, which is a love song. There's the allegorical reading, which is a deeper layer about God's love for his people. And there's even a third layer, a different reading rooted in the wisdom books. If you listen to part one of this series, the first book we talked about was Proverbs where a father is encouraging his son to seek out wisdom, and he personifies her as the most desirable woman in all of creation. And what's interesting is that Lady Wisdom in Proverbs behaves a lot like the woman in Song of Solomon. Proverbs 18.22 says, The one who has found a good wife has found a delightful gift from God. The only other thing that Proverbs describes in that way is Lady Wisdom. Proverbs 8.35 says, For the one who finds me has found life and received favor from the Lord. The way that wisdom is described in Proverbs chapter 5 as a garden well, a lovely doe, a wife, a bride, is exactly the same way the woman is talked about in the Song of Solomon, as a garden spring, a graceful doe. And just as wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1 goes out into the city streets shouting loudly for someone to listen to her, so also the woman in Song of Solomon takes to the streets to find her lover. In Proverbs, the son is encouraged to embrace wisdom as he would a bride. And in the Song of Solomon, the son of David does, at last, embrace his bride. The call of Proverbs is consummated in the Song of Solomon. And when read in this way, the Song of Solomon sends us right back to the beginning, to Proverbs, to once again study wisdom, to seek her out, to find her so that we may know God and serve him better. God relentlessly loves you. The wisdom books aren't a key to unlock his blessings. They're not saying that we have to follow a specific list of rules to earn his favor. God is saying to us, people who live in a fallen world, who long for Eden and look forward to God's redeemed kingdom, to listen to him. 
to pay attention to the way that he has made the world so that life might go well with us. Wisdom is knowing that the good life is found in God, that in his word he gives us situational wisdom, the guidance to understand our suffering and our joys, a perspective to understand life and what matters the most, songs to sing in any given situation, and a reminder of his faithful love. The one who finds wisdom has found favor from the Lord. And wisdom cries out from the streets, If you seek me, you will find me.